Let me just grab one. I'm going to send one down each side, but what I want you to do is just when it comes to you, I just want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice how dark it is. You see how dark it is and you can barely read it? You see why there was a need for parchment for something that was bleached, right, so that the letters pop from it a little more? So this is on papyrus, and uh, you can also see how torn it is. Of course, we don't have a lot of that left, right? You see how bad condition it gets in? Um, and this was uh, in a codex, and it's written in uncial or until text, and so it's all capital letters, real hard to read. Uh, but anyway, remember that this is from a collection of manuscripts that are all found together, P46. Uh, so the oldest copy of uh, Paul's letters, that collection, that's what it looks like for us today. So pretty interesting that there was one day a scribe who sat down and copied that all by hand so that we can have that text in our Bible today. You've got to think about the work that these people have put in. This human effort is the means that God chose to preserve his word and hand it down to us over time by people who took the time out to write these things down for us. Uh, pretty interesting, but that process is what we're talking about, isn't it? How has God's word come to us in this Bible? I'm going to... Um, Look at a couple of different, we're going we're to start a little different tonight, okay? I'm going to have some uh, text on the screen for you. Well, first of all, you know, here's where we've come from. We talked about preservation, some terminology, transmission of the text, writing materials. We talked about the Old Testament canon. We're continuing to talk about that tonight. But we talked about some of the main manuscripts of our Old Testament. By the way, about how many manuscripts is our English Old Testament based on? Primarily, our English Old Testament is based on how many manuscripts? Kevin says two. Jeannie says one or two. Correct, in Hebrew. Yep, that's how many we have. And when they uh, put together, that includes Dead Sea Scrolls and everything. So uh, when they when they are translating, though, the Hebrew into English for our Old Testament, they are primarily, primarily referencing only mainly one, the Leningrad Codex, which is the oldest manuscript in existence anymore until the one was basically done away with. The more I look at that, the more people have theories that someone stole it before it could be stolen and now they just keep it at their house. That's what people think. So anyway, it maybe it'll pop up, pop up again one day. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, this is the kind of the stuff we've talked about. Um, talked about manuscript source material. Talked about the closed canon. Uh, looked at Jesus' words. We looked at the Tanakh. And uh, th we have the image of the Tanakh. I'm still going to get that for you, by the way. Um, remember that it was a tripartite division, just meaning there, there are three distinct divisions to the Old Testament and the Hebrew uh, scriptures, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. Very important for what we're about to talk about tonight. Okay, I'm going to put a text on the screen. I want you to turn in your Bible to it. Um, Hebrews 1.6. 
If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews 1.6 with me. We're going to do this three times, and I'm just demonstrating something for you, okay? Hebrews 1.6. What kind of translations do we have represented here in the room today? I have the ESV. What do you have? ESV. King James. New Living. NASB. Holman Christian. Anything else? Okay. Everything I'm about to talk about is true for you, even though the wording is going to be slightly different. Okay? Hebrews 1.6. The ESV is on the screen, and it's going to be very similar to yours. Gene, possibly not yours. But yours is a thought-for-thought -thought translation, not word-for-word. -word. So that's the only difference, okay? Um, and it says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Do you notice something about that? It's in quotations. What is being quoted? It's being, it's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32. Although there are references to the wording in some of the Psalms, as you referenced, the actual direct quotation is coming from Deuteronomy 32. Uh-huh, yep, yep. Deuteronomy 32.43. Okay, let's look at what that says in the ESV. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Jimmy, toggle back to that last one. Let all God's angels worship him. That's what we're looking for. All right, go back to it. All, bow down to him, all gods. Do you see it? I've put it in yellow, bow down to him, all gods, because if you have an ESV, it's going to have a little number by that. Do you see it? In your, in your ESV text, it has a little number. ESV notes this kind of stuff, and it's going to say something like, the Hebrew text does not include these words. In the Hebrew, I almost tried, I almost showed you, but then I didn't. But in the Hebrew, there's just a bunch of dots here. There is no Hebrew text to back up, bow down to him, all gods. It's not there. It's not in the Hebrew. Same thing with this other part. He repays those who hate him. There is no Hebrew text to back that up. So where did they get that? Any idea what MT stands for there? Where I put the reference, Deuteronomy 32:43, the MT? Stands for the Masoretic, huh? The Masoretic text, primarily based on the Leningrad Codex. Okay? So the Masoretic text of the Hebrew reads this way, but actually not the yellow. It's not there. Point being, in Hebrews, they're quoting the Old Testament, but it's not in the Old Testament. So what are they quoting? What is the author of Hebrews quoting if it's not actually there? Huh? Did somebody say something? I'm going to put for you on the screen. I'm not doing anything, actually. Jimmy's going to put it on the screen. 
And uh, what this is, is an English translation of the Greek Septuagint. Let's see what it says. Rejoice ye heavens with him and let all the angels of God worship him. And so on. I don't need to read the rest. The author of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. There it is, plain as day, right? It's not in the Hebrew. It's only in the Greek. The author of Hebrews is not quoting from Hebrew. I know that's confusing. The author of Hebrews is not quoting the Hebrew language, the Hebrew manuscripts. He's quoting the Greek manuscripts. What language was the Old Testament originally written in? Hebrew. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is quoting. He's quoting Greek. It's not even in the Hebrew Old Testament. Is that interesting to you? Let's do it again. Romans 2.24. That's the hardest one to follow. I started with that one. Okay? Romans 2.24. Look at that one. The ESV will be on the screen. Romans 2.24, if you have it in front of you, it says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Do you see that there in your text? It says specifically, as it is written. And then he quotes, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is he quoting? Isaiah 52, 5. Well, it's unfortunate that the screens have frozen or something because I have this all on the screen for you, but um, I'm going to read for you, or you can just flip to Isaiah 52, 5, and what you're going to notice is it's not there. It's somewhat similar, but it's not the same thing. It doesn't say anything about the Gentiles in Isaiah 52.5, does it? Do you see anything about the Gentiles in Isaiah 52.5? The, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you? Anybody's Isaiah 52.5 say anything about Gentiles? What is he quoting then? It's not in the Hebrew. Right. Yep, yep, they're quoting from the Greek version, and it says, I mean, uh, because my people take for nothing, they wonder, they howl, thus says the Lord, my name is continually blasphemed among the Gentiles. I mean, it says it word for word. So in other words, who wrote uh, Romans 2.24? Paul, and when he quoted the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah, what version did he quote? Did he quote the Hebrew? No. But is that what we have in our Old Testament? But is that what Paul used? Are you confused by this? We use a different Old Testament than Paul? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. 
Mm-mm. No. Uh, no, the Dead Sea Scrolls are not going to contain this either. Yeah, no. So basically what I'm showing you here is that there are examples in our New Testament where the New Testament authors are quoting the Old Testament, but they're not quoting it in Hebrew. They're quoting it from the Greek translation, which contains different words. That's a good question. But is it confusing to you? If it's not confusing, then you're not there with me yet. You haven't arrived. Because it's very confusing that our New Testament authors were quoting the Old Testament, which is a different Old Testament than what we have in our Bibles today. That's confusing. I hope to bring light to that confusion tonight, but we're going to use one more example. Okay? Look with me at Luke 3, verses 3 through 5. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Still no luck on the screens there, Jimmy? Does it start with the voice of one calling in the desert? In verse 4? I thought I had a typo here. No? Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. It's 4 through 6. It should say, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Okay. Every valley will be filled, every mountain will be leveled, the crooked ways will be made straight. The glory of the Lord will be seen and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Is that what yours says? Okay. There are a few things here. Notice a couple of words. Notice the word filled. Every valley will be filled. Do you see that in your Bible? All the crooked ways will be made straight. Do you see that? And do you see all flesh will see the salvation of God? Do you see that in your text as well? None of that appears in the Hebrew Old Testament. You can look at where it's quoted out of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. That's why there's a typo, because it's 3 through 5 there. Uh, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. If you go back and look, and you're looking for where Luke has quoted, it's not in the Hebrew. It's not there, because that's not the Bible he was using. He wasn't using the Hebrew Bible. He wasn't quoting from the Hebrew. Hey, you got it? Oh. Uh, it's not in the Hebrew, but this exact wording is found in the Greek Old Testament. So he was very clearly quoting from the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, I use just these very uh, few examples to show you that the New Testament authors, most commonly when they quote the Old Testament, they are not quoting from the Hebrew scriptures in Hebrew. 
they are quoting from the Hebrew scriptures, but a Greek translation of them. Okay? And the Greek translation, say, I know some of you speak a different language, at least somewhat. When you translate from one language to another, don't you have to add or take away words to make it meaningful sometimes? Well, when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, um, sometimes different words are used. And, but what can be made very, very clear here is that our New Testament authors were most often quoting from a Greek version of the Old Testament and not a Hebrew version of the Old Testament. What was that Greek version that they were quoting from? Do we have that today? And if we do, should that be the Old Testament that we're reading? If it was good enough for the New Testament authors, shouldn't it be good enough for us? Why go back to the Hebrew if what they had was the Greek? That line of reasoning make sense to you? If they used the Greek translation, why can't we? If they quoted and made scripture the Greek translation, then why don't we use the Greek translation? Why do we go back to the Hebrew that doesn't even contain this stuff that they quoted? Now are you confused? I hope so. Because if I can't confuse you, how can I possibly unconfuse you? It is confusing, and when you dig into this, you, you start to realize that there's a world here that I've never considered. Why do we go back to the Hebrew to translate our English Old Testament rather than the Greek if our New Testament, 3rd century B.C., Alexandria, Egypt? Greek. Yeah, Koine Greek. The same Greek that our Bible is written in our New Testament. But the Jews still used Hebrew. Were there Jews in Alexandria, Egypt at this particular time in history? I don't know. Well, I do know. But until I really did some research, I would have said, I'm not really sure if there were and if there were a lot of them there. I don't know. Evidently, one-third of the city was composed of Jews. A third of the city. That's pretty big. They had their own allotments. It was estimated there's about a, a million Jews. Why are there Jews in Egypt? Well, I'm quickly going to go over this, but there's two reasons why there were Jews in Egypt. Uh, the Jews were in Egypt first after the Babylonian exile. There's this whole situation in Jeremiah 42, if you want to go look at it. Jeremiah 42. The king of Babylon when he took all the Jewish people into exile, he left some. And which ones did he leave? He left the poorest ones, the most uneducated ones, the ones that were worth nothing. He left them. He didn't want those ones. He left them there, and he put a local guy in charge, but yet there were some Babylonians there, and it was wartime, and the people, the Jews that were left, were terrified but they said, well, you've got a local guy here who's in charge. You're all right. You don't even have to deal with us Babylonians. Just go to your local guy. He's all right. Well, the local guy was assassinated after two months. So now they're very terrified. And they flee. Where do they flee? Egypt. They fled to Egypt. 
And actually the whole situation in Jeremiah is the people go to Jeremiah the prophet and they say, should we flee to Egypt? Ask the Lord for us. And so Jeremiah goes and he asks the Lord and the Lord says, no, do not flee to Egypt or you will be punished. And the people say, Jeremiah, you're such a liar. God definitely didn't say that we're going to Egypt. And so that's what they did. And they drug Jeremiah with them. So anyway, you want to read about that story? Jeremiah 42 and the surrounding area of Jeremiah 42. You can read all about that. Okay, that's the first reason that there started to be a settlement. Uh, the second is that King Ptolemy uh, of Egypt in the 3rd century BC, he went and took over the area of Judea and led about 120,000 Jews captive to Alexandria. After he led them captive to Alexandria, they ended up saying, hey, you know, it's all right over here. We kind of like it. So he released them from slavery, and they stayed because they liked it. And so all of a sudden, more Jews started moving into the area, and they said, yeah, this is all right. We like it over here in Egypt. It's an up-and-coming place. They were Greek. This is all because of Alexander the Great. He wanted to make the world Greek. And Alexandria was very Greek. And the Jews, they kind of liked becoming Greek. In fact, they like even taking on the language. So the Jews began to speak Greek. And so this is what a Hellenized Jew was. We read that in the New Testament. The Hellenized Jews... How did, the, how did the Jews who were living in Judea treat the Hellenized Jews? They didn't really like them, did they? No, because they thought they were blaspheming their heritage. You don't look like a Jew, you don't talk like a Jew, you don't dress like a Jew, you're not a Jew. But they said, yeah, we are. We just look like Greeks and talk like Greeks. So anyway, there's that little battle going on. Um, so there's this Hellenistic Jewish community and so there's this big thing about this letter. This letter has become famous. I promise I'm getting somewhere with all this information. Why, why is there a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures? That's the whole point. This translation has changed forever the Bible that we hold in our hand. It is very significant in how we got our Bible. And you're going to see why here in a second. Um, the letter of Aristes. It claims to know the origin of the Septuagint. Uh, it was written in the year about 100 BC. All right, the letter of Aristes. Some people say Aristeos. I think that's just a little fancy for me. I'm, I think it says Aristes. So it, the letter of Aristes, what does this letter say? The king of Egypt, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, he was living in the, about 285 to uh, 246. So he was very proud of the collection of the library in Alexandria. And there is a librarian. His name was Demetrius. And the, and the librarian noticed that they didn't have a copy of the Hebrew scriptures in Greek. And so Demetrius goes to the king and he says, don't you think it would be great if in your grand library, O king, that you had these great religious writings of the Jews in Greek? He said, that's a wonderful idea. So they sent a little delegation to Jerusalem, to the high priest, Eleazar. And they said, and one of these people sent by the king from Egypt, his name was Aristes. So supposedly, 
uh, this guy is the one writing the letter. He went from the king to Jerusalem to the high priest. And they said to the high priest, um, the king of Egypt wants a Greek translation of your Torah. What was the Torah? First five books. The king of Egypt wants that in Greek. And so the high priest said, that's okay, we can do that. And so as the story goes, notice my skepticism. As the story goes, he selects 72 men, Jewish rabbis, uh, six from each of the 12 tribes. And as the story goes, these 72 men are kind of quarantined in different spaces and over 72 days, they all have the task of translating the entire Hebrew Torah into Greek. And as the story goes, these 72 men, after 72 days, come together, they compare their translations, and what do you know? They're all exactly the same down to the letter. Of course, that's not true, but that's the story. That's the story that has been written. And so... LXX is 70 in Roman numerals. It has been rounded down to 70 from these 72 men over 72 days who translated the Hebrew, Old Test- Hebrew Torah into Greek. That's where the LXX comes from. It's, it's Roman numerals for 70. Why they rounded down from 72, I don't know. But that's what it is. That's where LXX comes from. Um, so the rest of the Old Testament was translated over the next several generations and it just became very, very popular. And some people believe the letter of Aristides was written so that the Jews would go, wow, what a miraculous work of God that he has intervened into human history and he has blessed this translation of the Bible that 72 men over 72 days would produce 72 versions of the Greek that are exactly the same, only a work of God. They did that to sell the thing. You see that, right? I mean, it was so that people would trust in it, that they would like it. Because would the Jews like, knowing the Jews like their language, did they like the fact that there was a Greek version of their scriptures? No. Isn't that what so many years later the Masoretes got together and said, we better protect this Hebrew. We don't like the Greek. It's not the same. And so that's what our translation is today from the Hebrew that was preserved by the Masoretes, saying that it was corrupted by the Greeks and by the Greek language. Okay. Um, well, what ancient copies of the Septuagint do we have? Uh, these are the three great codices that we've already talked about. The Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, these big codexes of of uh, the entire Bible that we have from about um, the 4th century is when they're from, 4th century AD. That's where the primary uh, manuscripts for this are located. So I'm going to hand this out, and you can see if you just want to pass it around. Or you can help. You can help if you want. You can take them. Okay, it doesn't matter. Okay, you're going to see when you get this, that there are more, the, the, the confusion is going to mount because you're going to see that 
you expect to see 39 books in your Old Testament, right? Or 22, or 24, right? Like the Tanakh. There's more. And it starts to get incredibly confusing. Why are there more books? Books that I've not even heard of. What is Tobit? Bell and the Dragon? What is that? Susanna? You ever read any of these? Psalm 151? How many Psalms do we have in the Bible? 150. Not in the Greek Old Testament. There were 151. What Bible did the New Testament authors quote? This one. So why then do we not have these books in our Old Testament if the New Testament authors had them in theirs? What's the same? Torah, see that? No problem with that, right? History, do you notice that it's already, uh, we're starting to see that the division of the Septuagint much more closely represent our English Old Testament? Our, our English Old Testament doesn't, is not arranged like the Tanakh, is it? Didn't we already talk about that? It's not arranged like the Tanakh at all. It's actually a lot more similar to this, our Old Testament is, if you take out some of the crazy books. First, second, third, fourth kingdoms, well, that's just different names for First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. We have no problem with that. First and Second Chronicles, First Esdras, we don't have that. What is that? Second Esdras contains Ezra and Nehemiah. There's Esther, but it has six additional chapters in it. That's strange. Judith, Tobit, first and second Maccabees. Okay. Go down to wisdom, or poetry, poetic literature. 151 Psalms. The wisdom of Solomon. Syriac or Ecclesiasticus, Psalms of Solomon. That sounds fun. Prophets. We have our minor, minor prophets, 12 of them. Then we have Isaiah, Jeremiah. Baruch, we don't have that one. Lamentations, yep. The Epistle of Jeremiah. We don't have that one. Ezekiel, Daniel. And in Daniel includes a couple other fun things, like the prayer of Azariah, the song of the three young men. We don't have that in our Bible, but it was in the Greek Old Testament. The prayer of Azariah, Azariah is also known as Abednego. And so the song of the three young men was about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Susanna. We don't have that. Bell and the dragon, we don't have that. You notice there are asterisks after each of those. And if you look at the little key down there, you'll notice it says it's an apocryphal work. And if you're not familiar with that word, then we have some new terminology to learn. And so there's three f terms that we need to become familiar with. Non-canonical, apocryphal, and pseudepigraphal. Non-canonical works are those that are written, but they are referred to in Scripture, uh, but they've been lost over time. We don't have them, but they're referred to in Scripture. 
like the genealogy of Adam. Remember we looked at that? You remember all these, some of these source books that we looked at last time? But where are they? Well, they're kind of here, kind of there, but we don't have them anymore as individual books or writings. So they're writings, we don't doubt that, but they're non-canonical. They don't, they're not part of the canon of Scripture, even though they did exist in history. Okay, does that make sense? The Apocrypha, Apocryphal works, these are a collection of writings found in the Septuagint and, as we will discuss, the Latin Vulgate. But they are not in the Hebrew canon. The name Apocrypha, you might know the term apocalypse. They kind of sound similar because they both mean hidden or not revealed, concealed. Um, and it just came to mean these particular books. The material of the Apocrypha dates from about 300 to B.C. to 100 A.D., and a guy named Jerome is the first to use this term. He's the guy that translated the Latin Vulgate. Who likes the Latin Vulgate? What group of people? Catholics. Who included the Apocrypha in their Old Testament? The Catholics. From what literature was the Latin Vulgate translated? From the Hebrew or from the Greek? When the Latin Vulgate was written in about the year 400 or so, 405, this guy Jerome, when he translated the Bible into Latin, do you think he looked at the Hebrew or do you think he looked at the Greek Old Testament? What's your guess? He looked at the Greek first and then he said, this is no good, and he went to the Hebrew. And he said, I am not translating the Apocrypha because they are not part of the Hebrew canon. And so the guy that hired him said, well, okay, do what you will. We'll just use the old Latin version. But he, Jerome didn't translate them. He wouldn't do it. How did Jerome know that they weren't part of the Old Testament canon if they were there in the Greek scriptures? Jerome knew that there were only 39 books in the Old Testament, even though the Greek contained more. How did Jerome know that? No, he wasn't Jewish. It was the year 405 AD, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. So Josephus was writing. This all comes together, okay? Josephus was writing at the same time as our New Testament authors. Later, toward the late end, but at the same time as our New Testament authors. Did our New Testament authors reference the Greek Old Testament? Yes, they quoted from it. That's the Bible they were most familiar with. But did they see these extra books as part of the canon? We think of it as a book, don't we? Like they're all together. I made a list. They're all in the same book, right? They weren't in a book. They were all individual scrolls. They were just kept together. 
They were just kept together. Now, why were these others kept together? Because they liked them and they recorded parts of their history. They didn't want to lose them. They liked them. Like first and second Maccabees, they were precious to them. They, were part of, they recorded the Jewish history. Does it mean that they thought they were inspired by God? Even Josephus knew that was wrong. Josephus knew about the Greek Old Testament. He was very well acquainted with the Septuagint. But he knew that those other books were not part of the canon. He knew that they only had 22 or 24 or 39. It's all the same number. They knew that they only had these books as part of their scripture. These others, yes, were with them, but they're not actually scripture. Now that gets lost over time as the Septuagint becomes the Bible of the early church and people are no longer reading Hebrew. All they know is this. If this list was handed to you, you say, oh, so this is all the Bible, right? Well, that's what the church began to think. And so when the Bible was translated into Latin by Jerome, they said just we need it in Latin because Greek is old school now. No one speaks Greek anymore. Latin is the new thing. Latin is what we want. And so now he says we need a Bible in Latin. Latin's the new language. We need a fresh version. Translate it from the Bible. What Bible? From the Septuagint. Well, Jerome started to do that, and he said, I don't, something's not right here. So he took on himself to integrate himself into a Jewish community, and those people taught him Hebrew, and he went and translated the Latin Vulgate actually from Hebrew. And the Latin Vulgate became the Bible of the church for a thousand years until the Reformation. And so, the church, though, said, Jerome, you're just wrong about the Apocrypha stuff. That's definitely part of the Bible. We're keeping that. And over time, the Catholic Church began to produce doctrine from the Latin Vulgate, including things like purgatory, praying for the dead. That's in the Apocrypha. So they can't get rid of that stuff now. No, that's the Bible. So the Catholics, to this day, claim that all these works are part of the Bible, divine scripture. Why? Good question. The phrase of the Reformation was ad fontes, which means to the sources. They said, well, what's the, what's the original source say? That's a good question for us to ask. Why do Catholics accept the Apocrypha and like more books than we do in our Old Testament? What's their reason for that? I went to the source, Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, it's, it's, very, it's all, it's what's highlighted here. This one sentence is why. Are you ready for it? It was by the apostolic tradition that the church discerned which writings are to be included in the list of sacred books. That's it. Tradition. We've always had them. Since when? Since Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate. We have a problem with that. Jerome knew they weren't scripture. Right? They misunderstood that the scrolls kept with the Old Testament canon. They thought they were scripture too. But they weren't. They were just kept with Jewish writings. Does this make sense? 
So are you okay with Paul quoting from the Greek Septuagint even though it contained more books because it wasn't a single book? We know that. They were just individual scrolls. By the way, the Septuagint is not a single translation. There's about 2,000 manuscripts that are compiled to produce this Septuagint. It's a little bit more complicated than that. But anyway, um, over time, I I'll say this, because I'd, I'd like to wrap up here. The Apocrypha, there's 15 books. We can determine those. You see many of them here, okay? The Catholic Church still accepts them, and the Eastern Orthodox Church accepts them as well. Actually, in a couple different ones, too. There's also something called the Pseudepigrapha, and these are writings that are falsely attributed to Old Testament figures, such as the letter of Aristides. Aristides didn't actually write that. It's, like, it's a historical fiction. And that's what a lot of these books are. They're just historical fiction. They're just made up, like the Assumption of Moses. First, second, and third, Enoch. You ever heard of them? You ever heard of Enoch? They're just, it's just made up stuff. It's just made up. They make them sound like they're Old Testament writings, but they're really not. Okay? Um, I'll go into a little bit more about how this has shaped uh, our Bible, but because of the significance of this, we had to cover it, and you had to know where it came from. Uh, are there any questions about this? Surely... Surely, there were dots here that I did not connect. Do you have any questions about this? About the Septuagint? About the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures? Do you understand the point that I was making tonight? Our New Testament quotes from what most often when it quotes the Old Testament? The Greek Septuagint or Septuagint. Both are okay, whichever one you like saying. It was written when? About 200 years before Christ, somewhere around then. It became popular because the Greek language was popular. So when they would read, what language would they want to read? Well, Greek, that's the common language. Koine Greek means common Greek. That's what it means. And so they would want to read what they know. It was actually thought that they would first read Hebrew in the temple, but no one would know what they were saying. So then they would translate or explain in Greek. But they just kept the front of reading Hebrew. Yes? It's from the Hebrew. You got it. Yep, yep. So our Old Testament that we have in our English Bibles is translated from primarily the Leningrad Codex, which is a Hebrew codex written by the Masoretes. Okay, several hundred years after Christ. Mm-hmm. Replay him. 
Yeah, and so the Greek Septuagint was the, the, the Bible of the early church. So after Acts, think after the book of Acts, the church begins to spread, right? What Bible do they have? Well, the Old Testament they would have had would have been the Greek. The New Testament they would have had were letters like you were passing around earlier. They passed those around. Everything they had was in Greek, um, primarily, all right? Um, and so for a couple hundred years, Greek was the language of the day. But it wasn't always so. The language started to change to Latin. Now Latin's the language of the day, okay? And so as the language changed, they needed a new Bible that was in Latin, okay? So Jerome was hired to translate a Latin Bible for the church. And they said, here's our Greek Bible, Jerome. Translate it. And as he started to translate that Greek Bible, he said he just wasn't comfortable. And he said, something's not right. It's just, this is Greek, but I know the Hebrews spoke Hebrew. He, and he thought, isn't it better that we go to the Hebrew? So he immersed himself into uh, a community of uh, Hebrew people who still spoke Hebrew wrote Hebrew, read Hebrew. They taught him how to do all these things over a period of years. And so then he begins to translate, not from Greek, but from Hebrew, the Old Testament. And from that community, he learns these apocryphal books that are in your Greek Bible, you know those aren't actually part of our canon, right? You know those aren't actually scripture, right? And he said, well, okay, I, I learned something new. No, I didn't know that. Neither did the whole church. So when, when Jerome said, I'm not translating those from the Hebrew, primarily because where are they in Hebrew? Because they were mainly in Greek. Um, he said, I'm not doing it. And so they just used an older version and said, okay, we'll take care of that part. You just leave that alone. About 405 AD. Yeah. Yeah, Jim. I believe so. Yeah, because of these things, correct. Yeah, actually what's funny is, so people became like, the Septuagint is the Bible. This is the Bible. This is the Bible. Don't change it. And then there's a Latin translation, and then what do they say about that? The Latin is the Bible. This is the Bible. Only the Latin, only the Latin will do. For a thousand years, that's what the church said. Until a guy named Erasmus, primarily. And Erasmus said, ad fontes. Back to the sources. What did the Greeks say? So Jerome, or, uh, Erasmus produced a what's called a diglot, side-by-side Latin-Greek New Testament. Did people like Erasmus because of that? No, because he was changing their Bible. What was translated from Erasmus' Greek text? The King James Bible. And what do people say about that? That's my Bible. You better not change my Bible. That's the Bible. It's, it's a translation of a translation of a translation. 
But yes, you're right. That's right. Yeah, because the word of God comes by means of Latin. That's right. The word of God is in Latin. God speaks Latin. Yeah. It's funny how it goes, isn't it, over time. Hebrew is the, the, the language God used originally for the Hebrew people. Then Greek and then Latin, and then, I mean, it just keeps going over time, but people get all caught up on what language it is, right? Back to the sources. What was originally written? That's what we're concerned with. Is that what textual criticism asks? What was originally written? And so we pursue that task, and that's a good task. What was it originally said? That's what we want to know, okay? Well, hopefully you're thoroughly confused with a bit of clarity, and, uh, but you know what? Such is the history of the Bible. It's a confusing roller coaster. But at least we're kind of, you know, making our way through it here, through the waves. Okay? I know we went a bit long tonight, but let's pray and uh, we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for this time that we can spend talking about these things. And uh, I thank you for a church who finds it important and that they dedicate a night to come and just discuss and think about these things because you know what? This is important because we want to know what you have said to us because you are the God of all creation. You are the sovereign Lord of this universe and we want to hear your word. We want to obey it. We want to live by it. So I pray that you would guide this process. Help us to understand and I pray that in understanding these things that you would give us strength you would give us confidence and understanding. Lord, and I pray that you're glorified through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.